Hi, everyone. I'm Natalie Gochner. This is Both Sides of the Aisle, and I represent the political center, have on the political right. State Auditor John Dougal. Hi, John. Hey, great to be with you. Yeah, and on the political left, Shereen Gorbani. Hello, and hi, listeners. A special shout out to Mary, who introduced herself to me this last week. We're grateful for all of you who are listening along. Love it. Uh, I want to talk about New Hampshire. That's the news this week. Of course, the you know first presidential primary. Of course, Iowa's a caucus. But before we do that, Shereen and John, let's got to live free or die. <laughs> let's let's uh, let's talk about Israel for just a minute. We haven't done that for a while. Um, but you know, we got news that Israel has proposed a two-month ceasefire in exchange for the remaining hostages. Uh, I guess there's 130 uh, hostages remaining in Gaza. And so this would be an exchange, uh, wouldn't end the war, but it would be a pause. Um, John, what do you think of this? Well, clearly, uh, Israel is feeling pressure from the war and, and humanitarian concerns. Um, I think ultimately, they, Israel wants two things. They want to get the hostages back and they want to live in peace. And I think any path that gets them to those two outcomes uh, is is a good move from Israel's perspective. So they've got the short term trying to get the hostages and the long term, how do they live in peace and not always be under the threat of uh, potential attack? Shereen? Yeah, I think anything that moves us to greater peace and stability in the area, considering I think recent reports are saying 25,000 Palestinians are dead and there are many more that are injured. And if we can think about just the um, reverberating impact of that in a community that is as small as it is, any anything that can move us to to a ceasefire is, is critical, right? Um, but I would say mm-hmm. the history tells us that it seems like when we get into these, or when Israel gets into these conflicts, that it's typically international pressure that brings them to a halt. So it's interesting, I think that, and, and John kind of mentioned there's growing discontent inside of Israel with the fact that these hostages have not been returned. So we'll see yeah. what those kind of mounting political interior and exterior pressures reveal. Yeah. John and Shireen, I don't know if you've been attending any of the Sundance Film Festival movies. Um, I've been up in Park City and met with some folks, but they've been having some vigils and protests against the Hamas-Israel war up there. Have you seen any of those, Shireen? Yeah, absolutely. It's been, I think, encouraging to see people really, you know, take those opportunities when a lot of journalists and eyes are pointed on an event to, to raise up this issue and remind people what is going on. Yeah. John, anything from you on Sundance? been to any films uh no no <laughs> nothing to report here <laughs> okay well, I, I did see a car that says sundance on the side there you go uh, john Downtown i know salt lake you'll want to comment on this uh, stopgap spending bill that's sitting on president biden's desk um this you know avoids a, a a partial government shutdown and it extends uh you know funding through early march uh what do you think it's yet another example of kicking the can down the road i mean they've kicked it down to the beginning of march and stuff like that. So it's it's just one of these things. Congress continues to limp along, limp along, limp along. It's 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 unfortunately shows uh, issues on both sides of uh, both sides of the aisle um, that we can't get to any kind of meaningful uh, budget resolution. Um, yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, it's just it's just such a problem. In our former president's words, Shireen, it's sad. Yeah, that's right. It's Um, sad. You know, I'm just curious if there'll be uh, similar repercussions for Speaker Mike Johnson as there were for Kevin McCarthy when we think about the fact that this is basically the same deal. So how is it that he's going to justify that this is okay and they ousted McCarthy for the very same deal? 
Yeah, yeah. I think he had a little more trust going into the speakership than uh, McCarthy had. Yeah, well, it was short-lived. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. But, yeah, who knows how this works. But, it, but it's one of those I've things. I've always been I mean, taught the backpack theory of politics, you know, where you have rocks in your backpack, and the longer you're in, the more rocks you get in that backpack, and the load gets heavier and heavier, and that's uh, that's what's going on here, is we have one oh, speaker that had a heavy, heavy backpack and one that's just starting to put rocks in it. Natalie, I've always heard it expressed as friends come and go, enemies accumulate. Uh huh. Yeah. Same. Similar point. Well, uh, one more thing before uh, New Hampshire, uh, we've got a president who's still claiming that he must have full immunity, and this is something that the Supreme Court. Um, I guess they're hearing oral arguments on February eighth, so this will be in the news again quite soon. But John, you have a, a legal expertise. What do you make of this? Well, let's just clarify which president is claiming this. <laughs> oh, sorry. President Donald Trump. Yeah, that's right. John? Yeah, so so we've seen in the past, um, and, and, and I'll just throw in, uh, you know, Richard Nixon made some arguments about this back in the 70s. But um, clearly when it comes to civil issues, you know, we don't want the president always looking over his shoulder. And so we've given broad immunity when the uh, president is operating within his, his outer scope of responsibilities and stuff. Because we want, even if he might make errors, we don't want him always second-guessing himself in that process. Clearly, we're in the courts. We're going to be testing that when it comes to uh, criminal or potentially criminal activities and stuff. And I'm not sure anybody really knows exactly where the line is, although I think most folks recognize there is a point where, yes, inside this line, you have full immunity. And outside of this line, you don't. And I don't think we yet know exactly where that line is. Shereen, will you be watching this closely? I will. I mean, I think the line certainly on the other side of the line might be an insurrection trying to overthrow um, a democratic election seems to me like a a pretty big trespass. Um, But I do think this is very interesting because there are... um, I think we've just moved into an era where we can anticipate, you know, certainly the Trump um, years uh, revealed this and we're seeing it now in the Biden years as well, but just a deep desire by a a dysfunctional government to go after the other party if they are holding the presidency. What kinds of things are going to be drawn inside and outside of that line? Are we going to draw any boundaries? I think actually is going to be important for the future of our democracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm... I'm When we go back, I mentioned Nixon. Nixon basically said, you know, whatever the president does is within the law and stuff. So mm-hmm. you go back, you know, 50 plus years ago. Boy, a lot has changed. Uh, okay. I want to go to New Hampshire. Where do you start? Um, I, I guess the tallies are showing Trump with about uh, 55%, uh, uh, Governor Haley with 43%. I said to my husband, if she does better than 40, I'll be happy. If she does better than 45, I'll be elated. So I got the middle, <laughs> Shireen. How are you celebrating, Natalie? Oh, well, you know, I mean, it's so frustrating to me to see the types of, you know, I don't know, willingness of fellow Republicans to accept who I think is a morally flawed leader. Um, And I I feel like we've seen enough to know that. But, uh, you know, I'm just me, so... Yeah, John, this is so, your party, so I'll let you, you I, guys I, go first. Let me let me ask another question of, of Natalie. As you look forward, you know, uh, she came in third in Iowa. She came in second in New Hampshire. Um, and as you look forward to South Carolina, which is her home state, my understanding is she is in second place there. Mm-hmm. 
is is the race over for her or or what do you think yeah i mean i think the conventional wisdom is that she's in trouble but i i will continue to remind us that big surprises happen in presidential campaigns and look no further than ron DeSantis, who was the darling of the republican party and dropped out after a single caucus you know involving a small small percentage of the voters in that state and uh you know DeSantis had this quote in his endorsement of President Trump where he said, we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear. I got to tell you, I'm part of that old Republican guard. I mean, I, uh, I'm a conservative because of the very, what I would call, elegant intellectual framework that forms conservatism about limited government, you know, and about a strong national defense and about the power of free markets to lift people and benefit society. And, you know, you have a, a candidate like DeSantis calling it warmed over corporatism, John. That, you know, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with what I think is right. Uh, I think Nikki Haley is the best alternative we have uh, right now. I'm so happy to join our lieutenant governor and our first lady in being excited about her candidacy. I think with a statement like uh, talking about repackaged a form of warmed over corporatism, maybe DeSantis is going to become a Bernie bro. Like that's quite quite the statement <laughs> for sure. Um, for I sure. Which, uh, welcome, uh, but I also have to say that there's like a a really interesting. Um, I know that we don't have time to really untangle all that happened with the DeSantis campaign, but the the never back down pack absolutely backing down did bring me just a little spark of joy this week. Um, but I also feel like there is something really concerning to me. I, of course, don't particularly align with Nikki Haley's politics. I do think that she brings sort of a nicer... Um, I do think that there are certainly elements of her politics that feel a, a little bit more of a throwback to Republicans of that, that feel largely gone to me. Um, but I also just have to say I'm not certain that she has what it's going to take to beat Joe Biden, which is saying a lot because we know that he's not particularly popular at this moment. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty here for the future of Republicans on the, at the top of the ticket. Mm -hmm. John, give us your commentary on what you saw in New Hampshire and, and Nikki Haley and the like. So, so my understanding looking at New Hampshire is about 40% of the electorate out there in the primary were unaffiliated or independents. And so when you look and say, okay, she got 43% of the vote, what that says is, you know, um, the Republicans largely were not going to Nikki Haley. The independents or the not Republicans were going to Nikki Haley, which, which does not bode Trump. well. Yeah, it, yeah. That's, and that's a problem for, for Nikki Haley because her message was not selling with the Republicans. My understanding is uh, three out of four Republicans voted for Trump yeah. and stuff. And so that's a weakness of her message. And if we look, what it says is um, for DeSantis playing nice with Trump, you can't beat Trump. Yeah. And Nikki escalating her uh, words of animosity about Trump um, and attacking him doesn't appear to work either. And I was hearing that even for a lot of independents, they weren't thrilled about her. They were more interested in Chris Christie. Um, and so some of them you know, wrote in Joe Biden or, or didn't bother voting or other things like that. But what that says is, is while she has some good aspects of her message, her message is not resonating with a large amount of the electorate in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And when you look, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, what we're seeing in the Republican Party is clearly a shift. But there is some concern, you know, with the corporatism and other things like that. I think we see it both in the Democrat and Republican parties, some co-opting of our parties by, you know, certain corporate elites. Um, 
which which causes concern for the average Joe who feels like the system is stacked against them. Mm. They're sitting there just trying to provide for their families, and they feel like uh, certain insiders, you know, are paying less in taxes or or are getting uh, favored benefits when it comes to regulations, other things like that. And so that is what that is what you know. Shereen mentioned Bernie. Bernie tapped into that. Trump has clearly tapped into that. Uh, animosity as well. Trump has tapped into it, but I just have to leave, like, I can't let that go by without saying that even though people feel like that populism that Trump communicates benefits kind of your average working individual, when he did have power, what he passed were tax cuts for billionaires, right? Like, and millionaires. So the actual economics of this do not play in the favor of working people when we see the kind of populist uh, leadership from Trump and, and frankly, the kind of warmed over corporatism that I think Ron DeSantis (laughs) may be referring to. Let's take a brief break. Natalie Gawkner here with John Dougal and Shireen Gorbani. Stay tuned. Shireen Gorbani on the left. John Dougal on the right. Natalie Gawkner in the political center, and this is both sides of the aisle. We've been talking about a lot of uh, news in New Hampshire and have a lot of local news to cover. But Shireen and John, just before we leave New Hampshire, I want to just ask, and I guess I'll start with John here, about uh, Brad Wilson's endorsement of President Trump. Uh, How did you read that, John? So, of course, Brad Wilson's a candidate for Senator Romney's Senate seat. Yes. So what you're seeing is uh, clearly uh, in anticipation of New Hampshire and with the wind coming out of Iowa, you know, Trump is, you know, unless something drastic happens, he will be the nominee for the Republican Party. So you're seeing a lot of folks that are now starting to jump on the bandwagon as a result of that. Yeah. I, uh, Shereen, I find it interesting because I, you know, if, if things hold as they are, I think Nikki Haley's planning a visit to Salt Lake City. <laughs> and, you know, I would have encouraged candidates to Maybe keep your keep powder dry and, yeah, and get, to, <laughs> get, to, get to meet and see this, uh, this incredible um, leader. But, uh, but we did have a pretty big in- endorsement uh, come out of Brad Wilson uh, for the president. Uh, and Shereen? We have lots of Utah Republicans that are lining up again behind Donald Trump. And I just really would love to invite listeners to ask yourself if that's something you feel comfortable with. Yeah. John, what do you think uh, uh, John Curtis will do? So, of course, Representative Curtis uh, is in Congress. He's now, uh, you know, running for the Senate seat. He's had his campaign launch. Uh, He's got great name ID. He's a popular guy. What do you think he'll do in the Trump endorsement? Uh, I have I have no idea what he's going to do. I can't predict that. All I know is he is clearly going to be working and traveling all over the state and pitching his message of of what he believes he can do in the U.S. Senate. I have a prediction there, Shereen and John. I think he will endorse the Republican nominee, <laughs> whoever that is. All That's right. just a way to, you know. To, to get around it? Th- thread the needle. Yep, because I don't think uh, President Trump's a popular person with a John Curtis, at least from what I know. Well, uh, let's let's also talk about Senator Mike Lee making some news. He, uh, he's been a bipartisan co-sponsor of what's called the Press Act but it provides better protection for journalists and their sources from federal government agencies. Shereen, this is one of these vintage Senator Lee things where he reaches across the aisle and he, he joins with Senator Dick Durbin and uh, Ron Wyden. Um, Lindsey Graham's on this uh, co-sponsorship. Uh, but I, found, I thought this is interesting. I, I, I remember one time seeing a picture in the newspaper of Senator Lee with Bernie Sanders doing something together. He does this from time to time. A broken clock, right? Right, twice a day. Um, So I think that we have, this is, I don't know that much about it, but on the surface, I do think that there are really important protections here. We could certainly stand to benefit from a greater uh, protective framework for journalists across this country and across the world. So finding ways to um, help people protect their sources, especially when we um, see just the importance that 
you know, really revelatory reporting has on on moving us forward and understanding corruption or the world that we live in, it seems on surface like a good thing to me. Yeah. John, I don't know if you have anything to add. If not, I want to go to the, the Utah legislative well, session. I mean, I think clearly it's a good thing as well. Um, you know, I'll just note that uh, the bar to issue a subpoena is lower than that to issue a warrant. And so um, I, I would like to see the uh, standards raised even a little bit more than what's in this bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's go to Capitol Hill. Uh, Shereen, I'm going to start with you because uh, I saw an interesting protest uh, at the Capitol. It involved, uh, it involved the Great Salt Lake. Uh, Terry Tempest Williams was there, the, the, the very uh, prominent author and, and uh, environmental thinker. Uh, when, in the interview, she was dressed up as a bird. And it took me a while to figure that out. I've seen this hat and things. I'm like, how is Miss Williams dressed today? But uh, you, have you been watching the Great Salt Lake issue? I have. Well, and it's interesting. I love that you kicked it to me because I'm kicking it right back to you. I understand that the <laughs> um, Great Salt Lake Strike team, of which you are a member, um, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I helped provide- share it provided a report that came out earlier this month and then was presented to a a Senate committee hearing. Is that correct? This week. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the top line items from that report. And then I can talk a little bit about things that I saw in the news coverage um, that raised concerns for me. Yeah. Well, for our listeners, there's two things to be aware of. There's both a strike team report, which is more of a technical data resource document to help uh, legislators with the decisions they have to make. And then there's an actual, uh, uh, what I'll call the strategy, the master plan that comes from the Great Salt Lake Commissioner's Office, who is uh, Brian Steed. And there's some nice overlap here, but there's two really important reports. And, and I recommend both of them. I mean, in the report that I helped with, we documented the impact of the 2023 water year, which a lot of people thought, you know, maybe would save the day. And it made a lot of improvements. But in the end, it was a net three and a half feet increase of lake elevation. It increased by five and a half. And then because of evaporation fell to 3.5. So it was very helpful, but didn't get us there. What really happened is we filled our, we filled our reservoirs. Yes, We had the, the most, you know, highest volume ever recorded after the 2023 water year. And then we also filled up our groundwater storage. And one of the reasons we didn't have so much flooding is because the ground was so dry, it it absorbed it. And in the end, I think it was good news coming out of the strike team that there are ways to um, help rescue this lake uh, by changing behavior on human water use and shepherding water, conserved water to the lake. It was good news, actually. Yeah, I think that's right. From just um, absorbing some of the coverage, I think there's something curious about the uh, lack of desire for conservation. It feels like there are some real voices that are anti this kind of notion of conservation. And I would just ask people to really think broadly about that. When we think about particular legislators talking about a pipeline that would have massive environmental impacts, talking about the kind of um, emissions that come off of 200,000 cars to, to implement something like that, or thinking about Unfortunately, I saw that um, uh, Phil Lyman, Representative Phil Lyman, uh, is kind of on the tree issue, right? Like suggesting the trees are part of the problem. I, I really feel like there are some very simple um, and concrete things that can be done, as you mentioned, to really thinking about how we're getting more water into our reservoirs, what, what we're doing to increase the health of our groundwater that can really benefit the lake. And those are not high-tech solutions and, and certainly not um, going to involve cutting down our trees. So I would, I would just ask people to really go and read the reports and understand the science yeah. behind what's driving the conversation. John, I want to bring you into the conversation, but as I do that, I'll just say that, you know, there's um, 
there's a lot of common ground here that can be found. You know, you don't have to be no water or, or fill it up in five years. We can make incremental progress and do right by both our need for agriculture and our need for, you know, growth and development and also uh, protect the lakeside industries and our human health and the ecology of the lake. Yeah, and, and I think there are some, it may be a small set of group of folks that think that we're not going to grow, and, and, and we are going to grow. We're going to have more people. We're going to have more folks moving here, more folks that are being born and growing up here. When you look at places like Arizona that have even more dire water circumstances, um, you, you still see the growth down there. And so what we have to do is figure out how do we accept and, and welcome that growth and yet use our water in the best way possible. Right. You know, clearly right. I think we all have concerns when folks are just, you know, you know, wasting water in you know, their lawns such that we see a whole bunch of water running down the streets causes lots of us concern. But we have to say, how do we use this precious resource as effectively as possible, but, but don't pretend like we're going to be rolling back um, the, the number of people that are living here because more and more folks are gonna wanna live in Utah. It's a great place. Uh, you know, to live, work, and to raise a family. So yeah. we need to welcome those folks, but be smart about what we're doing with the water. And, and Natalie, as, as we've talked about, I come from the perspective of we need to stop subsidizing with taxes and we need to have user fees so the users pay for the water they use. So you have the natural mechanism to drive you to use appropriate amounts for your situation. Yeah, yeah, love it. I have some common ground there with John. John, let's stay with you. You're at the Capitol, um, you know, most days because you work there. And, you know, we have the session going on. I don't know what you're seeing. Oh, is seeing. that why it's so busy in the parking lot <laughs> and next door? I, I don't know what's, you know, getting the most attention, you know, that you're watching. But these um, equity, diversity, and inclusion bills have certainly uh, driven a lot of media coverage and a lot of uh, public commentary. Do you want to comment on those, John? And uh, I'll have something to say, and we'll invite Shireen to talk as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, if I were to echo what I, what I see in here, it is that... Um, and we talked some about this last week, uh, the perception or the reality that, that institutions of higher ed and perhaps some other governmental entities, public ed, have gone too far down this path of DEI, driving a certain, quote unquote, woke agenda and not actually focusing on, you know, helping those disadvantaged uh, get a great education or other things like this. So, it, you know, to a certain extent, it seems more about driving an agenda than about helping those that are disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. And so clearly uh, the legislature, especially the Republican Party, is driving down this path with various bills and various uh, activities to try and uh, either pare that back or redirect it in what they think is a more productive agenda. So rather than just saying, you know, are you a certain race, are you a certain gender, it's who is disadvantaged and how do we help those folks? Shereen, I know you're Got something to say. Yeah, so I've been following the anti-trans bill pretty closely and, and would just invite people to come with me on a small mental journey, which is that I think when we advance quickly these culture war issues, we are, we're in a war. And in wars, there are consequences. And, and people are deeply harmed by the kinds of initiatives that are being advanced by the Republican supermajority. To sit and listen to trans person after trans person get up and try to f basically plead for acknowledgement of their humanity and not to be lumped into some sort of dangerous category of person was really heartbreaking to then watch the uh, lawmakers largely sit and vote um, 
ignoring the the comments that they had made. So I would just invite people to try to approach um, the world with a little bit more love, curiosity, and care, which I know feels like a small thing, but considering the kind of harm that I see from this legislation, I think can be monumental. Hmm. Yeah. You know what I'd love to add, and this is again coming from the political middle, but I, um, I want to remind people how you can get unintended consequences. And that statute is a very blunt tool for very complex problems. And that the better way to work through these things is always through collaboration and, uh, you know, something that allows you to innovate and recognize complexity and differences. I will also say that there's no question to me that higher ed can get better. We need to broaden our approach to include religious, socioeconomic, geographic viewpoint diversity. We can never engage in discriminatory hiring practices. I'm a believer in promoting equality of opportunity, not outcomes. I like to measure an account for every dollar we spend. Uh, but I would prefer to do that uh, in a systematic way as partners with our leaders and collaborate to give us the standards you want, let us innovate to achieve them rather than the blunt tool of statute that doesn't recognize so much complexity. Here, here. Here, here. <laughs> and, and John and Shireen, the power of higher ed, post-secondary education to lift lives and improve people, it's, it's such an important part we can't miss. Yeah, it's been critical in my, you know, my own journey. So I'm grateful yeah. for everything that happened to me in higher education. Well, we're at the end of our program. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. John Dougal, Shereen Gorbani, Natalie Gochner signing off. We appreciate Anthony Skoma, who produces the program. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>